Today on Never Was a Gamer, we curl up into a tiny morph ball and go through your headphones and through your speakers or headphones and into your ear holes. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time discovering everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me is our X-ray scope and finder of hidden things for this podcast, (laughs) Dimitri. Hello. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. We're happy you're here. If this is your first time listening and you want to know who we are and what this is all about, you can check out our episode zero where we dig into the details. Basically, Dimitri's loved games his whole life, and I played them a bit as a little kid and then didn't really pick them up again until I was an adult. So now we're both fans, but I missed like 15 to 20 years of landmark seminal games. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about some of them, dig into the history and explore what it's like to play them for the first time today. That's about all you need to know. Yeah. And so I want to echo what Michelle said, that if you're interested, please go and listen to episode zero. And please also listen to the first part of this two-part Super Metroid series. So this is the second part. We've come a long way. When we left off, Michelle had just learned what a Metroid was. She saw a picture. Mm -hmm. I loved him. So she went from knowing pretty little about the series (laughs) to uh, now completing what a lot of people consider the the strongest game in the series. So how are you feeling? You're now uh, a Super Metroid expert. I did a successful mission, according to this game. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get into that. (laughs) But you did succeed at your mission. Mm -hmm. Yep. I played a Metroidvania that is one of the actual original Metroidvanias. Yes, a Super Metroidvania. Yeah, the the one. And so today we're going to follow up. uh, We're going to talk to Michelle about her experience. We're going to see if she actually enjoyed the game, if it lived up to the hype, and if she might want to explore more of this series. So I guess the one place to start is just, did it actually meet your expectations? In the last episode, we set up your expectations. We had a long discussion about the Metroidvania as a genre, as a term. Was this, uh, do you think you got the, do you think you got the definition right? <laughs> was this one of those? Was yeah. it? <laughs> Yes, it was. (laughs) Or was one of those what you thought one of those was? Yeah, actually, uh, I actually feel like my gut description of what a Metroidvania is was pretty on the nose for this. I guess the one thing that was a bit of a surprise for me uh, that I didn't realize would be so important is um, finding secrets. Secrets were much more core to the gameplay of this game than I think I was expecting. But other than that, yeah, it, it was definitely... In my expert opinion, it's a Metroidvania. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other things you mentioned last time that you were really excited about, uh, that you had heard about the series, was that it created a sense of isolation. Mm-hmm. Did that pay off for you? And um, right, I, I think I expressed some concern, maybe you did too, about whether you'd be able to feel that going back to 2D pixel art, something from 1994. Did it still kind of create the that feeling for you? Yeah. Um, in quiet moments of this game, uh, it really really did. There was plenty of very sort of spooky, unsettling beats where there's not a lot of action happening, but environmentally or in the space that you're going through, it's it's very spooky and very ambient. And certainly through the intro uh, and in some other, other quiet points, I definitely did get that vibe. Um, it falls away a little bit for me in a lot of the action sequences, but I mm-hmm. think that kind of like, what do you want? <laughs> Yeah, and it probably wasn't helped by the fact that uh, for a lot of this, I was kind of watching your playthrough, and so you didn't have the you didn't have the lonely experience 
in yeah. the room by yourself. Yeah. I mean, for some parts I did. And for some parts we turned the lights out. Yeah. So did that work? Uh, did you, you took the tip from one of those reviews that said, turn the lights out, not for the whole game, but for, for some of it. We did through the intro and I'm glad that we did. I really, really like that through the whole first intro and first, I'll say hour, hour and a half of my playthrough, um, which is sort of formative, right? We did do that like lights off. We sort of had a light on in the hall, but that was it. And it, it it did enhance how that felt. Mind you, I also would say that's kind of the most atmospheric part of the game. Hmm. So I think that's, there's a chicken and egg problem there. Okay, yeah. But I liked it. Good, good. Yeah. <laughs> right, the other thing that you uh, you you said you had expected, um, uh, the technical term, spooky space shit. Yeah. Quote, did it give you that? Oh, hell yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I want to tell you about a uh, anglerfish skeleton on its own in an otherwise big empty room that you have to walk into its mouth to go through to the next area. Why? No reason. Just spooky space shit. That's <laughs> it. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't attack you. It's just there to make you be like, what? It? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, and it worked. It very much worked. Yeah, right. So and the other thing that we talked about, one of your expectations was, the, was that this was going to be a game of tone and atmosphere over plot and character. I think... I think you nailed that one. Yeah, that turned out to be pretty right. Uh, but one thing I am curious uh, about is if you felt any attachment to the plot or the characters, right? So you did go and you read up on what happened in the last two, or at least you read what the what the manual for Super Metroid told you mm-hmm. about Metroid and, and Samus Returns. And then you see that intro that kind of sets up the history. So there is there is some semblance of a plot. Did you care at all? Um, yeah, so obviously it's not the biggest thing in the game. I did do a pretty thorough reading of of the stuff that you mentioned because I did sort of want to be able to get any nuances of the plot that did come up. It was a little confusing having not played the first game. I wasn't totally sure how to feel about the Metroids because they're the enemy in the first game. They're a destructive force, but you have this one spawn that you're chasing and they want it recovered. And so I still feel a little ambivalent towards the Metroids as a thing. I also am not clear. There's some parts of the plot of this game that are not 100% clear to me. I don't know why there are Metroids in uh, (laughs) Turian. Maybe that's explained in the lore or documents that surround the game, but inside the game, it is... I think we could assume the space pirates were running experiments (laughs) is part of it on, on the one they captured. How they cloned it so fast, I don't know. Yeah, because they cloned it right to full grown, full grown ones that but are also like your out baby there. got huge, huge. He's fast, big, right? Yeah. Um, and I also don't really understand how because he's little when he's stolen. So I don't know how long it took me in the game world <laughs> to get through and into Turian if it was like three years of Samus's life <laughs> slogging through Zebus. But I, so I got really attached to the sense of place. I think okay. I can say that. Um, I don't know how much the plot mattered. There was bad guys. They had a thing I was after. I understand why the your baby Metroid's presence is important. Like I, I get it. It just it wasn't. It's not the thing that I'll take away from this game. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel anything? Do you feel anything for Samus as a character? Kind of. Um, I feel I think one of the big relation, one of the big hooks for me and ways into thinking about Samus is 
through the Chozo. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a, like a little bit of a of a connection there that just builds allows me to imagine her having some sort of feeling or perspective on what's happening that's more than just you know just a, a blank slate moving through this world. It does also let her narrate or tell you at the beginning what happened basically in the first mm-hmm. Metroid. Like you have sort of a gloss of like her face um, through her shield and she's saying like, I hunted the Metroids on blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I I do kind of, I do kind of feel something, but um, it, it's not, it's about what I expected. <laughs> right. And the, uh, and the themes of motherhood that they they play with here a little bit. I don't. Did they? No. No. Nothing? No. They didn't work. Okay, it's not aliens in that sense. <laughs> right. Yeah. And in fact, it feels like a weird fit to gloss that onto this character. Like this is a character who, in the first one, without hesitation, wiped out a planet of space pirates and then extincted a species, except for this one larvae, and like doesn't seem to think has no opinion on that. <laughs> Like, um, so I don't know. It's it's uh, it's a little bit of a reach for me mm-hmm. that part, um, but you know that doesn't tarnish generally. I think a, a really remarkable world and and sense of location. And so, just to clarify, right, your your overall takeaway is very positive with oh, this game. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. Sorry, I've been I've been saying a lot of sort of semi critical stuff, but this game impressed me so much. I think this game is outstanding. I I was floored by the quality of this game. I I think it's truly excellent, just like everyone else in the world. <laughs> An unsurprising <laughs> outcome. Super Metroid is good. <laughs> so yeah, but let's dig into that a bit more. And before we get into the specifics of the game, I want to talk uh, more about your actual experience of playing the game. Mm-hmm. So we talked before about how you grew up with the Super Nintendo, but this was, I think, your first, maybe your first uh, time revisiting the controller yeah. since uh, since your childhood. So what was what was that experience like? So I have one thing that I have to clarify before we go on. Okay. As I got to playing this game, I had a realization. Super Metroid was in my house as a kid. I as soon as I started like going through doors and stuff, I started to remember. Actually, we did have this and I think I tried to play it as a kid and got it was just like too hard and I didn't understand what it wanted me to do. And I think I probably like messed around with it until I got to a point where I didn't see the next like mm. linear door to open and then was like, I don't know, and quit. So I think at some point I played about 10 back minutes of this. Back to <laughs> back to Unirasers. Uh, then Donkey Kong Country came out and I played right. that for six months. So yeah, uh, that's egg on my face because I did not remember literally until I was going through it. And I was like, oh, Oh, okay. So oh, there were it's coming flashes. back to me. <laughs> but yeah, about the SNES controller, I mean, it's a brick. It's just like I mean, it's it's less of a brick than the NES controller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's, a literal brick. Rounded. It's rounded, but like I, my hands have gotten so used to things with comfy grips for mm-hmm. your for holding. Like mostly, I play either Switch or P or PlayStation at this point, and so I think my hands have just gotten used to having like a, a comfy grip space. Mm-hmm. This one, I felt like I was holding it with like two lobster pinchers, <laughs> like claws and like, it is very stiff. I also hated using the select button. Oh, to switch between oh my uh, God. your weapons. I hated pushing it. It was too stiff. It wasn't in a convenient place for my fingers. I hated using the select button. That's like, honestly, one of my worst, one of the lows of the gameplay <laughs> of this for me. 
Yeah, and so I guess mechanically, did you actually enjoy the act of playing the game? So we can talk about your experience, your kind of tactile experience with the controller, but also this is not a genre that you really are used to, especially in terms of the action platforming part and 2D action platforming in, in particular. Yeah. I mean, I don't think this is ever going to be my favorite genre. I really enjoyed my time with this game, but most of most of the things that I really liked about it aren't necessarily things that are unique to a game in this format and this structure. Mm -hmm. So I had a perfectly fun time with it, but I like this game much more than I liked playing this game. I, I'm much more impressed by it than the fun that I had. Like if the that moment makes to sense. moment. Yeah. Yeah. Gameplay like, of it. I will say it felt pretty balanced. Like I didn't, there was, I, I mean, I, I did get a little stuck at a couple points, but not, not so much that it pushed me in a super bad direction. There was a pretty good balance of navigation, exploring, combat, um, some light, like not totally puzzle, but like figuring out how to do something challenging or that you can't at first figure out how to do. So the elements are varied enough that I like I basically enjoyed I basically enjoyed the gameplay. Mm -hmm. But like, so a thing that happens often with me when I'm really, really impressed by a game is that as soon as I finish my, I want to restart it immediately and replay it because I always feel like the first time you're playing through a game, you're sort of just playing to see what happens next, as opposed to having the space to stop and really take things in. And I didn't necessarily have that with this. Like, I'm glad I played it. But when I finished it, I wasn't immediately like, oh, let's start this over again. So it was really interesting watching you play because it did kind of bring me back to watching you play uh, Bioshock for the first time. And uh, Oh, it's been a while <laughs> since that one. And this is, if you go back to our episode zero, we talk about, I think that was Michelle's first encounter with uh, moving in first person 3D space mm -hmm. and kind it of was. a first person shooter. And even moving back to this 2D shooter, I saw a lot of the same uh, hesitation from you <laughs> playing. Like you could tell that even though it, was, it wasn't 3D space, it was still kind of unfamiliar territory for you trying to do kind of the jumping and shooting at the same time, switching between your weapons on the fly, um, just having kind of a, a 2D combat strategy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I definitely had to think. And, and yeah, and sorry. Uh, yeah. And the other thing that I noticed that is that you sometimes would forget kind of what's in your arsenal, especially the charge beam. Correct. This is, I gave Barely you... Barely <laughs> used. <laughs> Yeah, I gave her one tip, ABC, always be charging. I did not accept she it. did not. I completely failed <laughs> as a coach. Um, yeah, you you never kind of ran around with it charged up. You barely used it. Now, the controller wasn't comfortable enough for me to do that. I didn't feel like I had fluidity with the other controls while also holding the charge. Just because of how the SNES controller is laid out. It didn't feel good, so I stopped doing it. And and right to your credit, it's it's not the easiest game to jump into anyway, if you're not familiar with the genre. Um, if you recall the the beautiful um, television ad or the ads with the the lamb shanks, right? This was promoted as something that was challenging that would turn that uh what was it? The, it was the, like a Rottweiler. The Rottweiler into a Chihuahua. Yeah. So did you did you become the Chihuahua? Did you find it a difficult game? It would take quite a physical transformation <laughs> for me to become the Chihuahua. Um, I mean, it, there was challenge for me because it's not my home genre, but I wouldn't right. say actually that in terms of the combat, this is an exceptionally hard game. Mm. Um, like I, I really kind of thought going in that, and usually in games like bosses are where I get stuck. Like if there's a sudden 
huge dis- difficulty spike around a boss and I just can't find my way through it. That didn't really happen with this game. For the most part, it would take me two or maybe three tries for a boss. It really took me a little more, but... Yeah, two tries, you're mostly... Uh, you you mostly um, beat them. Um, just from my perspective, <laughs> it was... This was kind of the routine, is that Michelle would be dumped in the boss room. Yeah, because it doesn't always telegraph... Okay, so there is that eye thing that you have to the, shoot the with a super door, missile. Yeah. But it took me like two or three to figure that out because that's not, not yeah. you know right and not on the and not on the mini bosses you don't get that you don't always get the uh, no that preparation um, yeah so Michelle would kind of find the boss just panic <laughs> <laughs> always just incredible I got panic very easily <laughs> and just throw like just jumping oh every oh which way God. and just shooting just firing everywhere. my whole arsenal yeah, firing everything. just everything <laughs> falling into the pits falling oh into the yeah. Spike running into the boss and then by the end right before you'd kind of die you'd kind of figure out the pattern and then the next time you'd go in and you'd be so much more composed yeah. <laughs> and you'd usually wipe them out pretty quickly yeah usually i did i did pretty well the second run um yeah it's it's just the surprise reaction to especially with a game where i don't feel so fluid with the mm-hmm. controls i don't feel like i'm in my home space where I am still, you know, every time I wanted to shoot up, I had to consciously think like, Mm -hmm. oh, R1 is aim like on a diagonal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Which you do a lot of in this game. There's a lot of shooting diagonally. Um, The one thing you'd mentioned, right, is that the you for you, for a boss, two two times to beat the boss is your your ideal. Yeah. This is a thing that this game helped me realize. I want to fight a boss twice. I do want to get my butt kicked once. That's fun. I should <laughs> stumble onto a boss, be like, oh my God, he should crush me. But then I also don't want to have to fight him 20 times. That like this one had a real sweet spot of like, okay, I I got really harshly beaten once, but now I know what I'm doing. I can come back. I can keep my composure and do it in one or two more tries. Yeah. And I, I bring this up only because we know that one of your gaming holy grails, one of your goals is to one day do a, a From Software, a Dark Souls, or a Bloodborne. That's when I'll be a gamer. <laughs> so you got a bit of a mm-hmm. hang up about not going through one of those. And so for me, this was a huge red flag because you would. <laughs> you That's would, not encouraging. <laughs> because your response to frustration, especially with bosses, is after one or once or twice, instead of kind of doing your reps on the boss, you just want to kind of shut it off and take a breather. Yeah, well, a breather, not quitting. I just... Because like you said, I get flustered. And so I know when I'm flustered and I'm like mm-hmm. way up here, I'm not making good choices. I'm not calm enough to like read mm-hmm. patterns and respond to them. I'm not maximizing or dodging the best that I can. So what I really want to do is like, okay, I know what I'm up against now. I'm going to turn this off. I'm going to have a little calm down. We're going to come back to this when I got a clear head and I'm going to do it right. So yeah, it's it's not, you shouldn't read that as quitting the game. No, I didn't. I never read it as quitting. Okay. But I just see, uh, I just foresee issues when the expectations well, that you do, right, five to 10 reps, maybe, where, where the boss I, is not. I remember you to. fighting one boss for like three to four hours. Let's uh, in, from, let's, from softwares. Let's not bring up some shame. <laughs> Sekiro. The last boss of Sekiro took me a long, long time, a lot of reps. Yeah. Um. So I might have needed more breaks than you would, but also there have been games that I've played where I've done that. Like I'm thinking of Fire Emblem Awakening, which was the first Fire Emblem that I ever, and the first game of that kind mm-hmm. that I ever played. It like, 
if I lost a character in a battle, I was resetting that every okay. time. If it took me 20 times to get through a level with everyone intact, that's how long it took <laughs> and is no big deal. So I think I just need the game to be giving me enough back that I'm like, no, I'm in this, like I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that's, I think, uh, looking forward to these other games where you might be expecting to do reps, that was um, maybe a really good sign is that uh, you are not shy about cheesing. No, I listen, <laughs> there's no shame in cheesing. Cheesing just means that you figured out a way to interact with the game systems <laughs> to make them work for you. And if that's not what a game is, I don't know what to tell you. Like, yeah, Michelle's Ridley strategy oh, was was genius. Was, is that was how genius. you're going to figure no, this? No, it, it was it was genius. So you you were having a bit of trouble with Ridley. I did Ridley four or five times before I sort of stumbled upon this idea that I had, which was basically to nuke him from little balls down with the power bombs. So I I basically ended up just rolling back and forth in the morph ball form, unloading all of my power bombs into the space when he was nearby, and that got him into his final phase and then i just blasted him in the face with some super missiles and that was that yeah it was it was pretty impressive how you went from kind of getting slaughtered by ridley to just decimating him i don't think you took maybe you took two hits yeah it was pretty good because you're so small as the morph ball that you just have for him to land hits on you you also can lock him in a specific pattern Mm -hmm. by moving in the right way where he just follows this exact same thing. You can hit him with your bombs. No big deal. And so maybe it's a good time to establish our official cheesing policy. There never was a gamer official cheesing policy. No shame in cheesing. No shame in cheesing. That's what we believe here. (laughs) House rule. No shame in cheesing. So let's take a let's take a tiny break and come back and get into uh, more details about about the game itself and uh, and your experience with Super Metroid. Great. We'll be right back. Okay, and we're back, and I think we're ready to dig a bit deeper into Michelle's uh, playthrough, talk about the specifics of this game, try to take this game apart a bit uh, to understand why exactly um, you liked it so much. I think the one of the major sources of that is just its general structure, right? The core, its core loop, or maybe even the core Metroidvania loop, the, the general progression, the process of moving th- through an area, getting an upgrade, and then maybe backtracking and in order to explore other areas, right? That constant give and take. Yeah, I the the pure joy of getting an upgrade, especially ones that you had been waiting for for a while, was so intense and so great. Like, I think at multiple points, I like yelled out loud or would like turn to you and be so happy when I got a new a new weapon or especially a mm-hmm. new navigation ability. I love those moments. Right. I think because in a lot of the games, that, especially the games that you like, right, we talked about this, how by and large, you like games with a strong narrative thrust. Yeah. And right, it's the narrative that is propelling you through the game. Whereas here, the motivation for you, I don't think was, well, I need to find the the captured Metroid larva. No, it was not. Right. What propelled you was uh, finding the next upgrade. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that yeah. was that was your motivation and what gave you momentum through the through the game. Yeah. It's also almost more than the area bosses, the thing that felt to me like markers of progression Mm. through the Mm -hmm. game. Um, Like I think in most games, you would use bosses to segment out um, 
chapters Mm -hmm. and it didn't feel like that. It felt more like the time before I had power bombs and Mm -hmm. the time after I had power bombs were different chapters. You know what I mean? Yeah. In fact, in one case, I think it's in, oh, it's in the wrecked ship. You have to fight the boss of that area like... He's like your third screen in that Mm -hmm. zone. You have to fight him to get the power back on. Um, So it's not like you fight the boss always after you've unlocked everything Mm -hmm. in their domain. But, you know, every single time that I got a new weapon. Right, getting the gravity suit at the end of the rest ship was was really the moment, right? And you get that great jingle. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Perfect. You know, that classic. <laughs> classic victory jingle. Um, and there's something. I mean, it's a melancholy victory jingle. Mm-hmm. It's like not, it's different. It's not a da 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 yeah. Like it's not that vibe. And it's, it's like not a, the, yeah, Zelda has one too that you'll you'll hear. You've probably heard it before. I uh, have probably. At and, some point and you, you'll get used like to it. Or like original Mario also, like after you would finish a level and get to the mm-hmm. castle or whatever, would have a little, like after the doop. Yeah, um, with, a little fanfare. The, yeah, there would be, but there was a little jingle in there yeah. as well. Yeah, but it's still, I think, right, it's still rewarding. It's not, it's not, it's not the most exciting in terms no, of. I didn't need the game to mm-hmm. celebrate for me. Mm-hmm. I was doing that entirely on my own every time I got one of those. <laughs> yeah, and you were really so excited. I think the you were kind of excited going on right. The one, the first one you get is the the morph ball, which you knew you knew that you could get into a little ball at some point, yeah. and that's right at the beginning. But I think the one that really. Um, brought you over the threshold of um, at least watching you was for me one of the I think the moment maybe where you really started to love this game was when you got the high jump boots yeah that's that's you accurate so exciting uh you're so excited <laughs> she got them and it's what it was and immediately you just said that's the power I wanted <laughs> I think I also said if I could have picked anything for this mm-hmm. upgrade to be, it would have been this like high jump at that moment. Thing. Yeah, because there were so many spaces that I had passed at that point. I mean, not that it's pretty early in the game. So I guess like not that many objectively, but it felt immediately I was like, oh, these five things I can now backtrack mm-hmm. to. I know exactly where I'm going. I'm going back to that room. I'm going to do that thing where I tried to make that jump 18 times before accepting that I couldn't. And what's so interesting about this, um, especially watching you, is that up until this point, I think because it's that that upgrade's still pretty early on and the game hadn't yet earned your trust. Yeah. And so you were getting pretty frustrated walking through and seeing all of these areas that you couldn't access yet. And they kind of came at the perfect moment, just as you're maybe getting a little frustrated, maybe a little too frustrated with Mm -hmm. it. You finally got the thing that you wanted, and all of a sudden, all of these possibilities opened up again. Yeah, I I used the word pure joy before, but I really like getting the getting the high jump boots and a couple of others. I would say the power bombs were a highlight, and the the being able to jump in the morph ball position. Those were mm-hmm. like the three where I was like, yes. Um, and it's really key to how the game is paced, right? And it's really important for in terms of the level design. For the pacing of upgrades to make logical sense. Right. And I think that's that. That's kind of, I think, in your experience, what do you think they were paced well? I think they were paced well. The only one that I think came later than I sort of would have wanted it to is the jump in the morph ball. Because mm-hmm. by that mm-hmm. point, I had so many times, not like a fun amount of times, mm-hmm. like a stupid amount of times, tried to jump into tiny spaces, okay. turning into a ball in air. And not been able, like, mm-hmm. 
I think that one kind of goes too long. But other than that, I did pretty regularly feel like I was getting new stuff. I mean, the wave beam and the ice beam aren't, I mean, until you figure out how much more powerful they are, they're not quite as impactful as getting like super missiles or the power bomb for the first time. Um, But yeah, every one of those was like, was a real celebration. It's such a balance that has to be met here, right? Because you want you want there to be enough time between upgrades that you desire the upgrade. Mm-hmm. But and it, it and it a thing that I like is it will show you before you get the upgrade specific instances mm-hmm. of where yeah. it it gives you examples of right. how you're going to use it later. Absolutely right. You can't desire something that you don't know that you have an application for, and especially because you didn't read the manual, so you don't really you didn't really know <laughs> it's coming up. Yeah. Um, so, right. So it's really important that the level does that, that it kind of whets your appetite, um, shows you things in the level that you really want to get to. And I read uh, the other thing that maybe was the source of some of your frustration, but I think is pretty important is to have like little puzzles that you think that maybe you can solve yeah. in your current totally uh, loadout. Yeah. But there's actually something down the line that'll make it so much easier. Yeah. Or and, or ones where you can do it at great personal expense. Yeah. Those are kind of the, <laughs> I think those are the best ones, right? Where you really can achieve it, like where you, you can, fu- to, where you you can, can get the power up. Power through this lava if that's really what we're going to do. Or you can wait 10 more seconds yeah. and grapple across. I think those are always the, <laughs> for me, those are the best, the best moments when there's that payoff. Um, the other thing, right, about the secrets and the secrets being doled out pretty early is that I think it it's an example of the game using them to teach you how you need to move through the game. Mm. Right? Because on the one hand, it is it is an action platformer. But if you just kind of treat it as a as a straight up 2D action game, like a like a Mega Man, you're going to fail. You're, you're going to miss so much. Yeah, you're not going to be able to progress. It's not even like you just won't get the benefit of a bunch of extra stuff. It's like you actually won't mm-hmm. go where you're supposed to go. So the promise of those secrets, um, especially like I saw this firsthand watching you, right? It, it kind of taught you how to explore and taught you how to be patient. And you kind of get that. So when you get to Criteria and you go down the first elevator, this is something that, right, you kind of get the morph ball right away and you get it. So you move to the right and then you're kind of blocked. Yep. And so you have to go to the left. And so this is this is um, a nod. So this is you're revisiting an area from the, the original Metroid. But it's also this tutorial that was in the original that they redid. So in the original, one of the rationales for doing this is you come down and because this is the first area you see. Mm-hmm. And so because you've played like a Mario or a platformers, the impulse is, OK, I must have to move from left to right. Right. And so it makes moving right kind of impossible until you go realize there's space on the left. Right. So it kind of tells you, OK, you actually have to explore space in a way that is unfamiliar. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And so it kind of repeats that and gets you the gets you the morph ball right away. And then which is through a wall that you have to shoot that you just shoot with. It's sort of the first big secret that you find, I would say, Mm -hmm. because you can easily hit it sort of by accident by just trying to shoot bad guys that are Mm -hmm. placed there with your regular gun. Yeah. Um, And so you get it really, really early through a secret. Mm -hmm. And it's super key that you get the morph ball and the morph ball bombs very early. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it was once you got those bombs and then you realized. (laughs) My moving through space really slowed down after that. (laughs) Yeah, the second you got the bombs and realized that sometimes you have to blow up right a chunk in the floor to get it. And and there's sometimes a secret there. Yep. You just started bombing everywhere. Carpet bombing everywhere. block. (laughs) Right. And so, yeah, you're you're you slow down so dramatically. Yeah. And in every room, you'd roll into your little ball yeah. and just 
yeah, just plant your bombs across the entirety of the screen and shoot every and shoot kind of every. That is what you got to do. You got to you got to press on the space <laughs> exactly. and see where it gives. And then once you got the X-ray. Oh, my God. Even slower in a way. Even slower. X-raying everywhere. <laughs> but it's but it's really. And then important. it got worse again when I realized some <laughs> things don't show up in the X-ray. Yeah. Like once you start finding oh, secrets yeah. that don't show up in the X-ray, you're like, oh, my God, I have to revisit so much now. Yeah, I can't remember what it was, what secret you found, but you did find one. You felt really proud of yourself, but then your response was, I know how this game thinks. <laughs> yeah, I was right. No, I remember when I said that. It was okay. it was in, uh, I had made my way to a room where there, where there was a major upgrade. So those rooms are marked on your map with a little dot. So I knew there was going to be an upgrade in there. And it's sort of right in the center of the room. And it's just this one one cell room. And I was still bombing around all the... Even though I got the thing, right? I got my Mm -hmm. way to the upgrade. But I was still bombing around all the floor. And you were like, what are you doing? And I think my response was, I know how this game thinks. Because in some other rooms... There are like mm-hmm. additional secret. There's like missile upgrades and stuff like that that are hidden in the floor in rooms where like nominally you've already found the thing mm-hmm. that is supposed to be in here. So yeah, gotta <laughs> push on up, push on every surface, see what moves. But I think what stood out to me about when you're saying that you know how the game thinks. Um, the one thing I was wondering is then, do you think that the exploration in the game happens kind of organically, and that you know you want to actually explore the space in this way, or is it more of this almost um, meta? <laughs> right, this meta relationship to the game where you're trying to get into the minds of the developers. Right. So this is something mm. that comes up a lot, I think, when we talk about traditional point and click games, which I know you've played a lot of. The best point and clicks are ones where the puzzles are solved based on the situation mm-hmm. and not on trying to get into the developer's head to find out what esoteric thing might they have figured might right. they have put into place to make you solve this puzzle. Right. Right. So did you feel that there was some kind of natural, organic experience in terms of exploring or were you pretty much okay i'm putting myself into the mind of the developer and i'm thinking about this level not as a level in in this game in a space that i'm inhabiting but as a series of pixels that have been meticulously put together see this is interesting to me because i think in games i don't think about the developers at all unless i'm blaming them for a bad (laughs) character choice like so when when i say that i i really like worlds in games i like learning the logic of the space and the Mm, logic mm -hmm. of the world like what what does this world view as possible Mm, mm -hmm. what what is contemplated by the systems and the lore and the the logics that are set up in here so I would say that one of the ones that happens almost immediately in this is that this is fundamentally a space that is permeable and is about finding those those secrets. And so, so did this world then have a consistent logic to you? Yeah, I do think so, actually. Um, I mean, I think the weird secrets are part of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I just, I don't, to me that, that doesn't cross over to being like, okay, what was the developer mm-hmm. thinking? It's more about... What are the rules we've set up for how this um, fictional and invented uh, controlled mm-hmm. space works? And then how do I work within that? Mm-hmm. And so I'm in a, I think I agree with you that it, that the game is pretty internally lo- logically consistent, except for that invisible wall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when you have to, when you need oh, to yeah. leave Norfair. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think it's the only, maybe maybe there's one other in the game where it's just, a wall that looks like it's a wall, but if you just keep moving left, you just go through it. But you don't have to shoot anything, and your x-ray doesn't show you that there's anything there. It's just a yeah. fake wall. Oh, I actually thought you were talking about something different. I thought you were talking about this one room where there's lava on the floor and rocks are dropping down. 
but there's an invisible platform. Oh, yeah. That you can go right. across. That makes no sense. Right. Because th- I think that's the only one. Too, it's the, the only game. one. I mean, there are rooms where there are things that are nowhere else mm-hmm. in the game. And for the most part, I like that. But there are a couple places where it gets a little <laughs> bit, a little goofy. Mm-hmm. It's, that old, it's that old thing where like you need constraints, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually not fun to be in a space where literally anything is possible. And mm-hmm. I think game design also needs to live and die by the constraints that it chooses for itself. So something like there's one invisible platform that you can roll across mm-hmm. in this one world that's like not signal. There's no visual communication mm-hmm. about it. Or yeah, this one wall you can walk through, even though it doesn't show up on your x-ray and whatever. Mm-hmm. Like those are weird. I think there are there might be more than one where you actually can mm-hmm. walk through the wall like that. There's still few and far between. They're pretty rare. But thankfully, so are these types of examples, right? Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. By and large, I think it's it's pretty consistent. I mean, for every one of those, there's three cases where you are able to interact with the environment in a weird way that follows mm-hmm. like real life logics that don't normally work in games. Mm-hmm. But in this game, it does. And this was one of my favorite things. So as soon as I got the ice beam, my first thought was, I wonder if I can now go shoot and freeze that lava that was burning oh, okay. me before. So that was one of the rare mm-hmm. exceptions where it do- <laughs> it doesn't work. My little ice beam isn't enough to freeze this whole lake of right. lava. And, the- and like, fair enough. Yeah, that also makes sense. That's fine. Yeah. But I can suddenly now freeze enemies and turn them mm-hmm. into platforms. I try that and it works. And that's something that I have to learn how to do. Mm-hmm. Probably the biggest example is, and this is before I even knew the game was like this. When I first rolled through that clear glass tube between, um, I want to say it's between Meridia and Brinstar. But there's like lava surrounding it. Like I think Norfair is or, the vertical. I mean, you can see platforms above and below. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can sort of see. But it's it's because you haven't seen a lot of Norfair yet. It's not super clear mm-hmm. whether they're like practical. Um, the first time you go through it once very, very early in the game when you have, I think, just your regular morph ball. And the first time I went through it, I was like, oh, I wonder if I can blow up this glass tube. And I actually left like morph ball bombs there and nothing happened because they're not strong enough. But I was sort of like, oh, okay, you can't do it. Like, fair enough. Like, I can't expect that. That would be wild. It would be wild if I could blow this up. And then later I got the power bomb, completely forgot about this tube, did in fact a whole run back through, didn't try it again. And it was only later when I was a little bit stuck and I was like poking around trying to figure out. Yeah, where you know, to go next. You know you need to get to Meridia and there's more of it than you've seen. You just don't know how to get there. Exactly. Yeah. When I happened to go back through this tube, probably not for the f- for the first time since getting the power bombs, but just mm-hmm. suddenly looking at it again and being like, oh, I wonder about now. And yeah, you have to blow it up to to be able to progress. But I tried it earlier just because my gut instinct looking at how much the design of the scene communicates mm-hmm. to you. And I just didn't have a strong enough thing. So yeah, that moment, that might be one of the most rewarding moments in the whole game. Oh, it game. feels so good. Because, okay, let me also tell you, because when you detonate the power bomb for a second, it doesn't work. It blows up and it holds for like a second or two where nothing happens. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess that didn't. And then just like one crack in the glass and then more cracks. And then the whole thing shat- It So it it unfolds like over probably five or six seconds. But yeah, oh my God, it feels so good. And and that's what this game does so well, where it makes backtracking kind of enjoyable because it's not only that your your new weapons or your upgrades can get you into places you've seen, but it allows you to interact with the environment in ways that you might have thought, maybe I could do this. Probably not. The game probably doesn't let me. Yeah. But then it does, right? So 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, freezing the enemies was something you did in the original, but even right back then, it would probably have the, it would have had the same kind of I can't believe I can do that mm-hmm. um, response from a player. Mm-hmm. It's just so enjoyable when the the thing you think, oh, this this would be interesting. There's no way they yeah. put this in the game. Yeah, it's in the game. Yeah. This game is so good at giving you visual information about the space that you're in. Like one of the other stupid little things that I think about, and I think I mentioned this to you, in one space in um, in Norfair, which is there's lots of lava there, mm-hmm. the background, you can see these like idol statues and there's just like a little bit of that heat wavy distortion effect. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you look across hot asphalt and it sort mm-hmm. of distorts how things look like they don't have to do that. It's just a background. Like it already would have been good if it was just like these big statues and this like temple mm-hmm. vibe. But you just get this little extra information, the visual information that you're just like, oh, like, <laughs> yeah, it's hot in this room, yeah. you know? So was there anything, though, about moving through this world then that you found frustrating? Um, yeah. Um, there were points when I was like, I'm tired of backtracking through this exact same Situation, mm-hmm. not not very much. I will say to the game's credit. No, and you really you love the moments when um when one location when you kind of fold back yeah. in on the location, right? Where you'd kind of go through a huge space and then you would recognize where you were yeah. and then you've connected with. It would where you've dump you out into like a corridor or something and be like, yeah. I know where I am. I know exactly where this yeah. is. Awesome. Um, yeah, that opening up shortcuts. I, I'll say the moments when I got most frustrated with the backtracking were. Moments when, so doors aren't marked on your mm-hmm. map. It's just blocks. So you cannot tell which two side-by-side blocks have a door connecting them and which ones just share a wall. So when you're trying to get back to, <laughs> to somewhere that you know where you want to go, sometimes you head off in a direction that is the direction of that thing. And then you go through a bunch of, you spend like, 15 minutes backtracking and then you Mm -hmm. realize you can't get through this way you have to go all the way around this Mm -hmm. like huge loop so that doesn't feel like yeah i don't know that i deserve that yeah we talked about the last (laughs) time most game maps are flawed but Um, yeah it would have been it would have been helpful what's really interesting is in reviews at the time of this game so for example two of the four kind of electronic gaming monthly reviewers mentioned how they felt that the map made the game easier or like almost too easy but i think they missed the the kind of Metroid one experience of of having to map it out yourself and, or remember where everything is. I do not want to have to do that. And it's yeah, I'm the same as like I. That's where I think I just can't. I don't have that mindset at all. We talked about this last time that I don't want to take. A, I don't want to have to take out the graph paper. <laughs> if I yeah, if I want to go make a D and D map, I'll go do that. <laughs> I don't. I don't need this. <laughs> all right. So the so the movement through the game's really um really fun and rewarding. And I think the other thing we have to talk about um, in terms of the design is this, right? So when when you think of Metroidvania, I, I'm still using that term, even though I said I wouldn't, uh, right? We often hear about it, right? The, the definition we gave is maybe nonlinear action platformer with progression, whatever, uh-huh. right? But that nonlinear is kind of key, the sense of freedom and exploration. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing I think I want to talk about is whether you thought, whether you felt this game was nonlinear or whether that was kind of an artificial sense. I think it's not as nonlinear as it feels like it is. Yeah. Because when you're actually going through and you really look, especially once you have the benefit of knowing more about how all the spaces connect, 
you're gated by lots of literal gates. Like you need X weapon to get through this door. You don't right. have so, that weapon yet. So, so let's let's back up if people aren't familiar with this term. Do you want to explain what you mean by gating? Yeah, sure. So gating is the is my understanding, which you know, I'm, I might be wrong, is gating is like basically how you keep a player going in the direction you want to go and how you block off areas that you don't want them to have access to yet. So it might be um, that this area, you need this super high jump that you don't have yet to get to. Or in this case, one of the really common things that Super Metroid does is you have all these different doors to the next room that are different colors, and you have to blast different colors with different weapons or whatever techniques for opening them to get them to open. So at the start, you're not going to have most of those weapons. So you can open blue doors, but you can't open green doors or pink doors or orange doors. So before we talk about other techniques, what did you think about that? Did you... because it is it is the it's most pretty, overt and literal and yeah gaming and and maybe even lazy in a certain sense that that's especially when you see some of the other things they do in the game whatever to, man <laughs> to actually uh, just have the color you know, yeah like i think if that was the only thing that they were doing i think i'd be like you could put more thought into that <laughs> at a certain point i mean okay if you really start looking at it a lot of stuff doesn't make sense to be inherently there in the world like why are all these weird upgrades hidden around this world in like these very like, mm-hmm. well, you know, at a certain point, you have to let a game be a game. And I guess gamey, not in terms of within the world, they kind of logically inconsistent or like if the space pirates wanted to right. secure this base, why didn't they just make them all super powerful? And <laughs> or like a key card that only space yeah. pirates have. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I don't. But I mean, like, I mean, in terms of design instead, right, kind of as the easy out in order to kind of make sure the player goes kind of goes through the channels that the designer wants them to, that this is the easiest, most overt, most gamey way to do it. Yeah. I mean, it definitely is that. I just don't know how much that ended up being to the detriment of the Mm. game. Because I I almost feel like uh, instead of, like one way to look at it is to dock this game points or whatever for using this very gamey mechanic that is like used in so many other (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, kinds of, games but also they do so much apart from and on top of this and sometimes use them to very trolly effect <laughs> which is another thing so i don't know there, there's still a playfulness to how mm-hmm. a lot of it works that I, I just can't work up the energy to be too mad about it you know what i mean it's not yeah i guess not to be mad at just rewatch it or, or replaying it and watching you play it those those gates, right? They, they're so much less impactful than for example when you fall into norfair and you can't get out until you get the ice beam because then you have to freeze the enemies to jump back right. up. Right? right. And that's also gating. That's making sure that you actually go through this area and, get and, you, the ice beam. and you get the ice beam. Yeah. Um, but it's done through the environment. Um, or I think my favorite thing that this game does, and I think it's, it's maybe the only example, is um, how you think you're gated and then you learn about the wall jump oh my God, as, yeah. as the technique that helps you get out of certain things. But then you realize you actually could have done that the entire game. Yeah. Like your wall jump isn't an upgrade. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't get a thing and now you can wall jump you and just, you couldn't before. You, don't you just, just get knowledge. Animals show you that you can do it. Yeah. And like that, I mean, it would be almost, it would be so difficult to have a game where the own, where it's just examples of that, where it's, you uh-huh. have, you yeah. actually have everything in your arsenal. You just have to figure out how to use it. Right. But I do want more of those. It's it like, works for that one it's thing such really a, well. It's such a great goal to aspire to in terms of yeah. designing your levels and making. Well, 
And you know what? I didn't even fully realize the implications until afterwards we went and watched a speed run of this game. Oh, yeah. And that guy's wall jumping from <laughs> the first second. And that's actually the moment when I was like, oh. You see how versatile it is. Yeah. From the start. Yeah. I was like, oh, right. Yep. I guess I could have been <laughs> doing that all along. <laughs> yeah. But this game really does so well, right? Is this... um it really is, I think, prescribing a sequence, especially if you're not a speedrunner, if you're not using yeah, right, certain a casual. Yeah, if you're just going through it your first time, mm -hmm. just a, you're not a, a gamer. You're just <laughs> hanging out. But you probably are going to hit most of the beats in the same order as most people, but yet you feel like every like you're so free in that in that. You space. feel like you're discovering everything mm -hmm. that you unlock mm -hmm. or find. Yeah, and I mean the secrets again. You mentioned really play into this. They're right? so but, powerful. Right, where there's so many moments where you feel like you're being transgressive, like you're going mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to a place you're not supposed to go, that you've like, like right, beaten the designer, like I've outthought the game. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, this is exactly where I was supposed to go. Right, right. No, actually, this is like the only way forward. Congratulations. Now you're at a boss <laughs> that you have to fight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this game really does bring you on in a lot of ways, right? Kind of this um, emotional roller coaster. Yeah. Um, especially in terms of the secrets. So you mentioned it a few seconds ago um, that you felt trolled at certain points by this game. I felt I have never so, been more trolled. I'd like to give you never. Okay, listen, listen. So first of all, sometimes you find secrets and there's just nothing there. Like there's multiple times where I found a little crevice that I could get into as the morph ball where you you like are going behind bricks. Like it is a it is a classic looking secret. There's nothing there. There's no upgrade. It just like dumps you out at the other end of some bunch of bricks with no advantage related to that. So it's just like, oh, I found something. I found something. Here it comes. Wait, there's nothing here. Also. <laughs> Maybe a space pirate found it. Oh, great lore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it also, it's not even, or like there's, there's one specific place where you can do your space jump or wall jump or something to get go like up 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 like <laughs> floors and floors it took me so many tries to get up this like narrow column and at the top you just bonk your head on a bunch of bricks you can't get through oh it's the one too where we wall jumped up and like you were wall jumping up and then the wall jumps a pain in the ass. Oh, like, yeah. It's really finicky. And, and it's especially like the timing is so different from every other game. Yeah. So you were doing it and then I tried to do it. <laughs> because, and we were and then I finally got the timing down. Yeah. And then bonked my head and I just gave you back the control. I said, don't even ask me for help again. <laughs> <laughs> I was so mad. Yeah, I know. This is the thing. I mean, there's also stuff that's not secrets. It's just trolly. <laughs> like there's one point where you go through a door and you see, like, at the other end of the room, on a flat surface, normal, normal room, is an upgrade. So you start just walking towards it because no enemies or anything. And the floor gives away and it <laughs> drops you into this entirely other room. And you can't just jump back up. You have to go around a whole circuit because the, the rooms connect weird to get back up there. I don't know if I even went back. <laughs> I think it was just a missile upgrade. And at that point, I was like, I'm good on missiles. Like, I'm not doing this for that. But yeah, it just stuff like stuff like that where you're like, okay. There's also one very important anecdote that I have to get off my chest. Norfair. This one room in Norfair. In your exploration, you're going up this column, right? So you're exploring from bottom to top. And like many of the vertical rooms in this game, there's a bunch of doors on either side. So I'm working my way up. 
I can still go up further than I am right now. And I can see there's more doors up there, but I'm passing doors and I don't want to pass them without at least peeking in and seeing what's in there. Because at this point, Norfair is challenging. There's a bit of a difficulty spike when you get there. I'm not doing well at this point and I have not saved in a hot minute. I'm like, this is exactly the kind of place where this game would put a save room. Again, I'm thinking like, <laughs> I know how this game works. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to just peek in what's in this room before I continue on up and check out the stuff at the top. I open this door. I go through it into the next room. There is no platform for you to stand on. When you open this door, you plummet down like three stories or blocks or whatever into this room where I think think if I'm not mistaken, there's like lava slowly rising. You have to do this very difficult platforming to get back up. You cannot get back to the room you just came from. That column, I don't get to explore the top of that right now. I have to get out this other way, go through like three more rooms. By the time I get to a save point, I have like such little health left. I'm so close to death and I'm so stuck. And to get back to the place where I had been exploring going up, you have to take this other route through Norfair that goes through like probably a dozen other rooms on your way, some of which are very hard and are the reason I was low in health in the first place. I was so mad. <laughs> I was so mad. It's like it knew exactly what I was thinking and was like, no, no, you're getting dumped. <laughs> I That was the maddest I was at this game the whole time. Sometimes though, the... The trolling of the playfulness is uh, is less aggravating. <laughs> no, normally it's it's much more charming and fun. And this just this one time, I was yeah. like, "Game." I go to my favorite, um, one of my favorite moments watching you when you kind of had the rug pulled out from under you was when you were going to fight Crade. Mm-hmm. And so this was your first boss. Well, you would have fought the Spore Spawn, but this would have yeah, been your yeah. first kind of major boss. That's the Malboro thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And you you knew what Craig looked like because we talked about it um, last time. Yeah, he was in a bunch of promo art. He was in a bunch of promo art. So you knew what he looked like, um, at least in the promo art. You didn't know what he looked like in the game yet. Correct. And so you're going, you're running down this corridor, and you're you're having these spikes thrown at you, and you're kind of struggling. Like, it's a difficult corridor. It's full of enemies. And you get to the end, and then there's Craig. And you're just like, I found Craig. Yeah. And so you're ready. And so you died to the the spikes and the, the kind of the onslaught of enemies. But then the next time, as usual, on the second run, you're so much <laughs> you're like prepared and you like blast <laughs> through and they're just running through, running up to Craig, And then you shoot two missiles and he's dead. Yeah. And your face just went from like joy to, I think, realizing that you were duped and then just like, oh, shit. Because <laughs> <laughs> like then you're like, that wasn't real. There's Kraid, no way was that was it. it. <laughs> There's no way. He looks exactly like Craig. He's just a troll mini Craig <laughs> yeah. for you to like knock over. Craig baby. Yeah. And then and then you get to real Craig who's like enormous. The other thing you mentioned going through that corridor with the spikes and seeing Craig is that it was like a Bowser, like a yeah, Mario he, 1 Bowser. It's really funny. He moves and and shoots stuff at you exactly like those <laughs> Mario 1 Bowsers. Like he sort of just jumps up and down on the spot um, about his own height again, <laughs> moves back and forth just a couple steps and like shoots stuff. <laughs> Um, it's funny. And then also there's some like echoes of old Bowser's in the Krokomire oh, fight yeah. as well, where this one, this one I also thought was really fun and cool. You have to like keep hitting him aggressively to like push him backwards. And if he gets hits on you, he pushes you backwards. And there's like at the end of the room, you can be pushed into a bunch of spikes and die. So you, you have to fight him by like pushing him back, hitting him, hitting him, hitting him, not getting hit until eventually you push him far enough. He falls into lava, which is also like. 
there's a lot of that that also is mm-hmm. like yeah we're aware of the bowser tradition <laughs> like that's sort of, i don't know if that's i'm sure that's not intentionally supposed to be like a statement about our earlier like <laughs> games and development but i don't know is it, it was like because yeah, it's not the mario team making it but i mean there's there's echoes i'm sure they played sure. it oh yeah um yeah i don't know it was interesting yeah, and in terms of so this isn't if we're talking about kind of these this emotional roller coasters that we're going on. This isn't a troll, but I'm so glad that you had this experience of at a certain point you do not care about missiles anymore. Oh no, <laughs> no. The, the experience of finding a secret <laughs> and being like, oh, I found something good. Maybe there's going to be an energy tank. There's going to yeah. be something good, and then just getting t- and there is a secret there, but it's missiles. And, and just it, being like, at that point, you have 160 missiles. missiles. <laughs> And this is like a thing that gives you five more missile capacities. Like, I don't care. What is the, the difference between 160 missiles, the and 165? Well, the first like 50 missiles that you get, you're like, oh, yeah, more missiles, like more stuff mm. that I can like fire in that boss's face. But then at a certain point, there really is diminishing returns on your missile capacity. Not the game's fault you're so powerful. Oh, it's so good. Because <laughs> at that point, you also have super missiles. You power bomb. You have so many things where it's like, I just I want more super missiles. I want more mm-hmm. whatever. Give me a stronger gun. Yeah, starting th- maybe three quarters of the way through, you'd see them and you're like, I don't even want to figure out how to get them. I, yeah, I don't yeah, even yeah. Care. Sometimes you're so disappointed. Yeah, sometimes if it still would require a little bit of puzzling, I'd just be like. I don't need this. And when like, you struggle rather... through a room only for there to be missiles oh at the end, God. you were so mad. It yeah. Was, and, and I know that feeling. Yeah. It's so satisfying to see <laughs> that on somebody else. Enjoy your schadenfreude. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, the, the moment to moment, right? The loop of this game is so good. It's mm-hmm. so well balanced. It's so well paced. It also, honestly, um, after, once you start getting upgrades, like after your sort of first venture through criteria and to the point where you get, I'll say, the missiles, after that, you are constantly getting upgrades mm-hmm. and stuff for the entire rest of your playthrough. Constantly, you are getting like, ooh, found this new secret, got more health, got more missiles, got more power bombs, whatever. Um, like you feel it just, it gives you these gradual little, like, little bit here, a little bit there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, all of a sudden I would be like playing for an hour, an hour and a half and be like, I feel like I got so much done. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> a very good peeling to your lizard crate brain. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so with that, we'll take another little break and we'll come back and uh, talk about this question of whether Super Metroid is a, is a cinematic game that we brought up last time. So we'll be right back. So the next thing we want to talk about uh, a bit more is this idea of Super Metroid as a cinematic game. Right, so this is something that we brought up last time that a lot of previews and reviews of the day described Super Metroid as a cinematic game. And I think we need to discuss whether you think that uh, term applies. Yeah, I, you know, you had asked me to think about this term as I was playing through Super Metroid. And I did. It, but one of the things that I kept coming back to is I don't think I fully understand what this term means i don't think i'm really clear on that and i could use some more exploration of that. <laughs> yeah i think there's a lot of uh lack of clarity around this then as today right okay we so it's not just a me. lot yeah i i think we're not we're often unclear about what exactly we mean when, when that term is thrown around um to give you a bit of context th- this is a discussion we have a lot currently but it it's not new by any means so in 1994 
um, there was a lot of concern around games becoming more cinematic. And often that had to do with um, games falling kind of on one of two extremes. On the one hand, you had the rise and then pretty swift decline. And, and by 1994, they're already kind of in decline of full motion video games, FMV games, right? Kind of live actors and live action being filmed and then turned into a game. Then the other end, you have the explosion of licensed television and movie games, which have all, always been around. And um, a lot of people are starting to reach a breaking point with them, especially because by and large, they're not turning out to be very good. And so there's a lot of, on the one hand, kind of frustration with games that try to be movies or eight movies. But then on the other hand, as we saw this idea that, oh, Super Metroid is a great game and it can be cinematic. So for example, um, in 1994, in the same issue that reviews um, Super Metroid in uh, Die Hard Game Fan, which was a magazine from the day that was very, I don't, I don't know how to describe kind of the tone of it. It was much more kind of a passionate appeal. Um, a lot of it, a lot of kind of how it, games were reviewed in that magazine carries over or seems much more, I think, current today. It was much, it wasn't so much just, I'm going to review a game based on like gameplay and sound and graphics. It was much more kind of an experiential review. Okay. And um, the editor of it was known to be kind of incredibly passionate about games with the kind of the positives and negatives of that, of everything that that might uh, connote. In in the um, issue where he reviews Super Metroid, he has this editorial called uh, My Game. What's his name? Um, Dave Halverson. Okay. Yeah. And so he, he reviews or he has this editorial called My Games Are Holly Weird. Where, oh. he's, <laughs> where he, he, he's complaining about, quote, assembly line projects and talks about how games, quote, don't need or how we don't need, quote, cheaply made games to refresh my memory of the movie and how the industry is kind of in danger of losing its identity by tying itself too close to movie tie ins. Then in his in his review of Metroid, he brings this he brings this up again. So he he absolutely loves the game. He's kind of floored hmm. by it. He also, though, in that same issue says that he's previewed Earthworm Jim and it's the greatest game he's ever seen. <laughs> this is where the Earthworm okay. Jim thing comes back. So Look. He's got some give, things right. Does give Earthworm Jim <laughs> game of the year, which maybe we'll need to play Earthworm Jim so we can, so you can make this uh, definitive. But in his review of Super Metroid, he expresses the cynicism with the industry again, but then talks about how this game bucks the trend. He says, "Quote: You can have all your big licenses, all your one-on-one fighters, because we talked about all those fighting games are really popular at the time, mm-hmm. and you can give me the full, give me full motion video, the likes of Gandhi. I don't really know what that means. Oh, the movie with Ben Kingsley, <laughs> possibly." <laughs> But he says, I'll take a game like Super Metroid any day. Um, but right, the irony is that so many people called Super Metroid cinematic and, and highlighted that as one of its strong points. But obviously, it's not based on a movie and it's not an FMV game. And I think what people are getting at there is that they don't actually want it to be like a movie. Mm-hmm. And even today, I don't think anybody actually wants their games to be like a movie, except maybe like the David Cages of the world. And so maybe this is a, a, a topic we can come back to as we play more and more games that might be called cinematic. Mm. Um, looking forward to maybe the next game we play. Mm. <laughs> but I for me, I think what people actually mean by that is that they just want some sense of deliberate pacing, deliberate tone, or deliberate storytelling, right? That what they're looking for in, when they say something is cinematic is they want some evidence of some kind of guiding hand. Okay. Okay. That there is some kind of intent behind every decision that's made. That it adds up to some kind of coherence that has a progression in it and a sort of, not worldview, but a, a view of its self-contained world. Is that fair? I, yeah, I think so. And I, I don't even mean that it's 
it doesn't have to be like the work of like one like genius like author, auteur, right? Like, like yeah, <laughs> I don't think I don't think even that's what people are getting at. Okay, I think they when people talk about games as cinematic, what they're looking for is just some evidence that there has been a lot of thought put into every moment, and there's some attempt to guide the player through a curated experience. Okay. And um, right, and some genres lend themselves more than that than others, which is why I think we get a lot of games that seem cinematic in in kind of the action genre where a lot of the cinematic elements happen right in the set pieces or in the cutscenes. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it needs to be that type of game to be cinematic. I don't even think it needs to be heavy on story or character to be cinematic. Right. I mean, this one kind of isn't. Right. Um, frankly, like it's funny you say that a lot of this goes into the these sorts of like action platformer games. Because to me, what you're just describing is so much easier to map onto like a really well-crafted RPG. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um that has so much more in common with most of the movies mm-hmm. that most of an audience would be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do see how some of those elements that you're raising are present in Metroid. So yeah, that that does help me make sense of this a little bit. Like, I, I mean, the the clear point to go to, right, is to think about that intro sequence. Yeah. I, and I know yeah. you love the intro sequence. So I don't know if you want to kind of talk about your experience starting the game. Yeah. Um, one, one of the things that Dimitri and I talk about a lot just when we're playing games is like, the moment that you have with a game when you know it's better than just good, like where you where you start to feel like, oh, this is something special, you know, like we, we both play a lot of games, we play a lot of good games, but like where you where like, no, like it's love like this is this is big. Um, and for me, I had that right out the gate with the intro. That's pretty immediate. <laughs> yeah, no, I honestly I, I was so impressed by the intro. I was like, OK, we're See, doing watching you. I would have sworn it was when you found the high jump boots. It was both. It Maybe was both. that's kind of the mechanical, it's special versus yeah. the... Well, okay, because another thing that happens is sometimes I feel differently about like the art and theme and world of a game than I do about mm-hmm. the gameplay, right? Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it makes sense that I have almost these two poles, like tent poles of moments. But so right out the gate, I think I, think I probably played this game for 10 solid minutes mm-hmm. before I saw my first enemy mm-hmm. other than Ridley mm-hmm. um, or Ripley. Uh, <laughs> you did. Be, it's Ridley. Is it? Okay. Okay. I I still have never been sure. Because um, yeah, I, all those, the first spaces are open and there's no enemies. There is this sort of ambient, but tense, spacey music. I moved through them so slowly. I was like edging across just slowly revealing more and more of the screen. Because I was mm-hmm. waiting for that thing to be mm-hmm. there, right? Like, I'm, like, waiting to be ambushed. I'm waiting for all the enemies mm-hmm. to come. I know this is a game about shooting and jumping. And, like, I'm having mostly, like, flat platforms mm-hmm. and empty rooms. And so <laughs> I had, like, a really palpable sense of, like, you know when you go into a space and it's too quiet mm-hmm. and it's eerie? Like, that's definitely the situation. And I just, I moved through it so gradually. Like, I listened to the game so closely. Like, I looked at everything. Um, and then you lose your first fight with Ridley. Um, he gets away with the Metroid that you came there to to rescue. And you get dropped back onto Zebus. And again, you have this sort of you go one way, it's blocked, it's still open and empty, and the rain is coming down. Uh, and just getting into the planet, into Criteria for the first time, really sort of ends this this uh, unnerving arc 
I would say. And it continues because you you get your morph ball and you get missiles and you still don't see an enemy. Yeah. Right. Like it it is probably more than 10 minutes, maybe, if you're if you're kind of stopping and exploring and looking mm-hmm. at every screen and taking in every detail. And right, I think that's right. There's a lot about that we could say is cinematic, that it almost plays like a cutscene, mm-hmm. um, like a playable cutscene, that there is right an establishment of the sense of place, that there is right, you have kind of the dramatic rain. Mm-hmm. But I think I'd I'd say the thing that makes that the most cinematic is just the very intentional restraint. Right. The holding back of the enemies for 10 minutes. And in those moments, right, there's a, it's very clear that there's something guiding this experience, right? There is like a there is some kind of directorial effort going into this moment. Yeah. It also is a moment when I feel an emotional effect intentionally produced mm-hmm. by the creators. Like they know that they're pushing against sort of what I would be used to from playing a bunch of these games. They know that this is going to put the player on edge and be suspenseful because they will not be used to this. They'll Mm -hmm. be used to like, right away, we're going to get some little dinky enemies to knock out immediately and then sort of proceed from there. And you you do get to that once you get going. But um, yeah, I just, that, that whole sequence really, really worked on me. I felt it. I felt in the world. I... It's not something that I think I've really experienced before, certainly not from a game of this era. And yeah, I just, I was like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. okay, this, okay, you've got some ideas here. Like, mm-hmm. this is, you've got a plan. You've, you're doing something very intentionally here. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, cool. And I think for me, too, what's most impressive about this is that it starts like that. And whereas a lot of other games need to kind of revisit those moments throughout by taking control away from you as the player. In this, it really, it does other things. It kind of re- retains the cinematic quality, but without taking control away from you. So it it's, it establishes itself in this really kind of dramatic way. But then it knows that you have to explore and you have to shoot things and you have to jump at things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also does sort of do this little gesture again sometimes to mark when you're opening up a new space. Mm-hmm. So I talked earlier about the, the anglerfish skeleton that you have to get up and mm-hmm. go through its mouth. That's, I think, on your way to Craid's lair. Yeah. That's into the little little part where he is. Also, when you first go to Norfair, you're in a big room that extends a long way on both sides mm-hmm. that doesn't have any enemies in it. Um, and it sort of echoes your first landing onto Zebes, except it's like way underground. That's Ridley's lair. And so like, I understand that that means something like to players. And that again was a moment where it's like, oh, I'm kind of like into the space I wasn't mm-hmm. able to get earlier. We're, we're in the back half of this game. Things are starting to come to a head. And it gives you again, this like unsettling space mm-hmm. where you all of a sudden are alone. And yeah, right. It's very good about establishing space and differentiating spaces from each other, setting mood and tone through the art style, right? mm-hmm. the visuals and the music. Yeah. But also, like you said, giving you a few screens even just to kind of take it in. Yeah. And it does do a really good job of differentiating um, the different the different spaces like Criteria, which is sort of the Earth's crust from Brinstar, which is sort of plant based. Meridia is a lot of water and, and sand and Norfair, which is really lava-based. Um, so yeah, we have these really clear, distant, different zones. The enemies look different. They act different. The The backgrounds work differently. Sometimes you have different ways of traversing mm-hmm. the space, depending on which zone you're in. Like, So you're just bringing those up, I think, um, raises a, an interesting point. We want to think about how this, why this why this feels different from other games. Because when you, when you lay out the spaces in their kind of superficial forms, it's just... 
your almost stereotypical game mm-hmm. levels. You got lava level, you got desert level, you have water level, mm-hmm. um, you have right, kind of forest jungle level, level yeah. right, jungle level. And and so what is it then that makes for you that made these feel kind of both connected and discrete and as real world places rather than just video game levels? I think some of that is about fluidity and crossover between them. So for example, just to recap the um the the tube thing, the glass mm-hmm. tube that goes from I'm gonna say Brinstar to Meridia, although I can't hundred percent remember mm-hmm. if those are the two. Um, but you know that the verticality of that room, like the crisscross of the tube, is is all lava. Like mm. you see a bunch of spaces in other like biomes or whatever that you don't have access to right away. Mm-hmm. And so because the the spaces are so interlocked with each other, um, I think it feels it's not like a Mario where when you progress from level one, you go to level like world two, which is the desert world. And when you finish that, there's like a screen wipe. And then you go to world three, which is, I forget what the third world is, like the giant Mm -hmm. one, whatever. Um, And also I will say it's very good at using the theme, but it doesn't lean on it the way some Mm -hmm. games do. Like you still have layouts and platforms and stuff. And you also have good variety that makes sense within a single space. So like... In the example of Meridia, you have a bunch of water stuff, including segments where you have to move around underwater. You have sort of sandy platforms that invoke sort of a beachside thing. You also have the beginnings of little dumpings of space pirate tech. Like you have a little more robots. Like it's a little bit less just one thing. Um, And I think that kind of helps. Yeah, but the diversity within the space, but also the continuity of the spaces. Obviously, it's not like Mario where you're literally kind of taken to a new map. Um, but yet there are a lot of games that still put spaces together and they're they're supposed to be continuous, but they don't feel like they're continuous. They mm-hmm. still kind of feel disjointed or like video game spaces. And I think right thinking about how this transitions between them, how you move in and out of them, all of that seems like this world is actually crafted as a as a whole. And again, right, this deliberate directed world that exists for these characters to walk through and live in. Yeah, they also make sense spatially. Like mm-hmm. um, Criteria is sort of right below the surface. You move down into what you easily can picture as like an underwater reservoir of Meridia. The lava space in Norfair is below Meridia. Mm-hmm. It's the lowest like into the earth. Like if you think about yourself... Other than I'll say Brinstar, there's plants, they're underground. Maybe they don't need sunlight, these plants. But, you know, uh, otherwise, generally, you're moving into the interior of the earth and it's it sort of tracks that as and well. And the other thing I want to talk about here, too, is the the wildlife in, all these, in mm-hmm. all these places. Not just the enemies, but most importantly, the wildlife, the animals that aren't your, aren't your enemies. That mm-hmm. just kind of exist in that world, not for you to shoot them or to attack you, but they just... Some of them exist to teach you a move or to assist you in another way, but it's still a, this idea that there is life here that's not just hostile yeah, to your existence. Isn't that, just part of your plot, really. Yeah. 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 No, that was that was really, really cool. Um, I liked especially the uh the turtle thing mm-hmm. with little mm-hmm. turtles that it it won't attack you unless you start messing with its its baby. baby turtles, and then it'll sort of attack you, but also it'll help like it can jump. It gets Real you an high. energy tank. <laughs> yeah, much. yeah, it'll like help shoot you up. Um, but that again, it's like finding a family unit mm-hmm. that is was gonna be here anyway. This is where they are. 
So if we're talking about these spaces and this relationship between creating these living, breathing spaces and this idea of a cinematic game, was there a space that stood out for you of them all? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I would say, apart from the intro sequence, Mm -hmm. the intro to the wrecked ship was Mm -hmm. really, really memorable. So this is when you get to the wrecked ship, you've been on Zebus already for a little while. And you've sort of gotten used to the the going through different zones and the motions of that. And you get to the wrecked, you get into the wrecked ship, which is a ship that crashed a really long time ago. And um, you get in and the first thing that you're presented with on the inside is a save point, a save room that doesn't work. Like it mm-hmm. lets you, it lets you fully feel that excitement. Every mm-hmm. time you find a save point in this game, it's a, it's a good day. So you fully get that like, yes. And then it doesn't work. You can't save here. The enemies are completely different. There's like this sort of ghost type that follows you around. Um, there's guys that are stuck in these little glass um, cases where mm-hmm. you can shoot them, but then you can't get the thing that they dropped. Like you can't <laughs> access it. And it, generally you realize the power's out. Like there's exposed wires everywhere. So something's wrong. You can't interact with a bunch of the doors because they are powered down. And it feels again so unsettling and different. Like all the all the rules are just different from how you've interacted with things in other spaces. And you actually have to progress and beat the boss of that world. Um, is that Fantoon? Yeah, your friend. Yeah, Fantoon. Um, in order to turn the power back on. And then there's different hazards when you navigate that space with power on. Like there's live wires that you don't have to worry about earlier, where now they're live and so they hurt you. But you can use save points and doors and stuff. So it just feels like a real change in the space. And it just, it was like a moment mid-game where all of a sudden I felt like I was having to Mm. play differently and Mm. I had different expectations. One piece of evidence, like evidence that a game is actually working on you in in kind of this cinematic way is when you change up your play style to almost role play the situation. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and that's one of those instances where I think I saw you do it. You became so much more apprehensive. Mm-hmm. You were kind of gaining confidence elsewhere in the game. But then when you got to this ship, it's like you said, it, it is so different and so alienating that you almost had like you as a player and then Sam via extension yeah. was like, reacting as they might actually react if this was a filmed scene. Yeah, I was back to progressing through it really slowly, mm-hmm. really carefully, being really timid. Um, but actually picking up on something you just said at moments when you are pushed to role play, that actually makes me think of what I would say was the biggest experience I mm. had of really role playing in this game, which was with the Chozo. I really felt, I don't know why, I really felt a connection to the Chozo. I completely, not for this podcast just sincerely adopted this practice where every time I found a Chozo statue that would give you a new ability or whatever, mm-hmm. they're sort of um, the, the statues of this race, like on their knees, holding like cupping in their hands, whatever the thing is that they have to offer. I would pause and like have Samus like take a knee. Like I was like paying respects mm-hmm. before approaching and taking the thing. And I just did that the first time, very like unself awarely. It just it like felt right, and I was so impressed. I was very like impressed by seeing the Chozo <laughs> statue the first time, and then it just became a thing that like Samus does. Mm-hmm. Samus takes this moment with each of the Chozo because I know you had told me in advance that that Samus was raised by them, and so actually some of the moments that were the the moodiest in the game, um, and I mean that in a good way, 
were these moments where you've been navigating the space by yourself, and all of a sudden you stumble on this statue of these people that you know Samus has a connection to, and it feels like all of a sudden you have an ally. Like uh, this, this group from the past is like reaching forward and like offering this thing up to help you. Um, and I, I really love that. I hated when you had to fight <laughs> when they turned out to be a security device. <laughs> felt bad. I didn't like it. And then I really, really, really felt something when at one point you find a Chozo statue and it's different from the other ones because it doesn't have anything in its hands. Like it's, it's still got the, the cupped hands, but they're empty. And so it took me a minute to figure out you actually have to get into their hands. First of all, you were pissed off at it well, <laughs> because it didn't have something for you. I love upgrades. I've made no <laughs> secret of that. But so I like did my little Paris back thing and I was like, okay, what's going on here? And um, you have to get into its hands and get into your little morph ball. So you basically become the thing that it's holding and then it stands up and it walks forward through this space, like opening up. Uh, a path that wasn't there before and then stops and like puts you down when it's like made it to the next safe space. And I just like, I really felt, I like really felt something about that, like uh, a connection with the Chozo. Like I, I love them. The game, it does make the most of the few moments when you don't have control. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like it's never, those moments are never just for their own sake or there's no exposition. So they're not just about doling out exposition or, yeah. Um, just about pointing to itself as being like a movie. Instead, it's, they're used for very particular mm -hmm. effect. Yeah. Now that that really, really works. It does It does feel weird not to be able to control Samus. You almost always can, except for a very couple, very small number of times when you've frozen. And then maybe we should uh, finish this segment by talking about a part of the game that I think was trying to be cinematic, but I think for you did not quite work. Which is the whole ending sequence. Yeah, I didn't love the ending, you guys. I wanted to, but I... So so suddenly there's plot at the ending <laughs> in like the most plotty way. Like you... So by ending, we mean pretty much from... from so from Ridley through the actual ending of the game. So after you beat Ridley... So all of Turian, pretty much. All of Turian, yeah, yeah, yeah. This last land that only opens up after you beat Ridley. Oh, and while we're here, we should mention this land that opens up after you go back to the statues. We didn't, we've never mentioned these statues. The we statues. just have to shout out the statues. The statues were great. Shout outs to those statues. They were good. They, and you see them so early. Mm -hmm. You see so early, you come into this room that's just these golden statues of the four bosses with like clearly destructible bricks underneath mm -hmm. that like will break once you've taken out all the bosses. It's very cool. I love knowing kind of who the big bads are. Okay. It's the same thing to go back to our yeah. discussion of the manual, like yeah. why I kind of like seeing... I love knowing like who the rogues gallery okay, is. This is who we got to handle. Yeah. And knowing that they'll be kind of incrementally more difficult okay. and, and then knocking them off. I, I love anything that has that structure. So I love these statues. It was incredibly fun stopping by there on my backtracking after beating another one and being like, let's go collect the eye gem from whatever. Anyway, so you go so into Turian. Yeah. So you beat Ridley, who's the last one who you saw with the Metroid. Turns out the Metroid has escaped Ridley's clutches. Um, and then you have to go back to the statue. Now you've beaten all the guys. It lets you into Turian. You realize there are Metroids here. Um, you end up in this fight with Mother Brain. Um, oh, but before that, uh, you're you're running through the space or being chased by this guy who's who's sort of killing you. And then all of a sudden, he's attacked by this one Metroid that drains him. 
And then it starts to go kind of after Samus. And then at some point it like realizes, oh no, and backs off and flies away. And you, and you figure, one- yeah, it drains her down to one health and then backs off. And it's like, oh. And so, of course, we conclude that that is the the grown-up version of the larvae that, that recognizes Samus. So it flies off. Samus continues and gets to the mother brain fight. At first, it's just like in this tube. It's just like held. Like- yeah, that's that's recalling the fight from the original Metroid. Okay. So if because you I've, I haven't played it, but it's you I've seen that fight a lot. Okay. And so yeah, that's just kind of another callback to okay. f- kind of fighting mother brain in the tube. Okay, I get that. That's in the fun. Container. I mean, it doesn't. So it didn't work for me, but I respect <laughs> that as a as a choice. And then, but there's sort of a second phase to that to that fight, which is once you've sort of broken up uh, Mother Brain out of that tube, it it turns out has like a whole body now and sort of stands upright and you have to fight it a bunch. And then after you get health down, it attacks you with this intense beam that again almost kills you. And then the Metroid comes and attacks Mother Brain and drains it. It, it looks like completely down, whatever. It turns out the Mother Brain then fights the Metroid and kills it as far as we can tell. I don't know if that's picked up in a later thing. It seems like it's dead. But then it it the Metroid recharges you with the health and powers it stole from Mother Brain, and so then you have to use those on Mother Brain, and then you beat Mother Brain again. And then after that, you the the planet is going to self destruct. I guess Mother Brain set that up, and you have to like flee out of the planet. I think you only have like it's not thirty seconds. It's like a no, minute, you 30 have, maybe no, you have it might be three minutes. Okay, it's like Two not to three a, minutes. Not it's, a huge amount of time. It's not a huge amount of time. Yeah. It's it's pretty tight. Yeah. So that's the ending. Um. So. I guess like, yeah, this is this is a, a part that is clearly trying to be cinematic that didn't work so well for me. It's like kind of cute that the Metroid recognizes Sam. Like, I I don't hate that stuff, even though it's a little bit, I feel a tiny bit eye-rolly about it, especially like very recently this Metroid was small. Um, now it's huge. Don't know how Metroids grow, but uh, I don't know. It just... I think a lot of it hinges on the fact that I don't like the mother brain boss fight. I think, okay, I think that's part of it. Yeah. I think the other part is that, okay, so Ridley is, for all intents and purposes, the real last boss in terms of challenge. Right, right. And then once you get through the Metroids and get to the last save point, I think the intent is for that last piece to be kind of just playable action set piece. Oh, okay. That's kind of the ending. And so instead of giving you a cutscene, it's like, let's let the player play it, which is why you get kind of the first mother brain fight that's not that hard. Uh-huh. And then the second mother brain fight that's actually really easy. Yeah. You literally just set yourself in the corner of the screen and shoot up at it on a diagonal and just unload into Unless it. Unless your impulse every time you see a boss <laughs> is to panic and jump around the screen and flail. Some of us, some of us panic. And so I, I think I think one of the things that happened in this case, and that I don't, it's not your fault. It's just the developers didn't account for it necessarily. I think ideally everybody would kind of get through that whole piece in one go. Okay, like pretty easily they're expecting you to be able to flow through this. Yeah, because okay. it is presented as right the kind of the ending, and they want it as this kind of playable cinematic action sequence. Okay. and it's really just. It's such a buzzkill. You have to start over oh, and start my over God. and yeah. start over. Yeah. And so you get through and you lost to the the kind of dino mother brain. Mm-hmm. And then you got, you you beat it the second time, but then you had a lot of trouble with the escape. Yeah. I and, lost on the escape probably six to eight times, would you say? 
you were so <laughs> Dimitri was so stressed out. I was so, this part. <laughs> you were you were not great at the escape. I was like, <laughs> okay. why are you freaking so out? So here here's just a few things that happened during okay. In my defense. Well, there is I think there's a reason we'll get to this. It's, yeah. And it's partially my fault. But so there's a part where you just have to go up vertically and it's the kind of this long this large kind of vertical climb with little platforms. At this point, right, you have the space jump and you have so much and the jump. screw attack. You can jump like crazy at this but point. Instead, Michelle decides she's gonna do little bunny hops to each <laughs> individual platform and spends almost the entire time <laughs> just getting to the top. Which also weirdly, those are harder to control at that point in the game than big jumps. Yeah. Because sometimes you Because your p- jump is so powerful. Yeah, 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 yeah. And <laughs> so that happened. On her next go. <laughs> so I died that way. On her next go, she's doing pretty well. And then out of nowhere decides, oh, now would be a great time to pull out my X-ray. Okay. So and let start me... exploring <laughs> as the time is ticking down. She's leisurely. Okay. So this is because around because, because in every other part of the game, when you use the X-ray scope, it freezes time. So in every other part, when you use the X-ray, enemies stop moving, projectiles freeze in place until you release the x-ray. So why would I not think that if I use the x-ray to look for a way to save the animals, a noble and virtuous goal, that time wouldn't wait for so, me? So this is it. I I mean, it's, I stupidly reminded her about the save or kill the animals thing, but you didn't- did not need to remind me. I was so stressed about <laughs> but it. But didn't tell her where it was. And so she knew that there was something she was supposed to look for, but didn't know where it was. And so- that was dressing her out. Remember how <laughs> I panic? <Yeah. laughs> Gets luster. <laughs> <laughs> and so this sequence that I think is supposed to be a complete from mm-hmm. the run to mother brain and you know you escape just in the nick of time, but you do it yeah. in maybe one or two goes just became this frustrating, laborious, yeah, repetitive process that really I think hurt the ending as an ending. Honestly, I didn't have fun like with this part (laughs) Mm -hmm. um for a mix of reasons that i think are the game's fault and some that are not the game's fault uh on my end i did have a cinematic suspenseful (laughs) action-packed movie experience it was very spectator yeah this whole the whole run of the whole game was there's so many times when you got away you got out of a situation (laughs) with like one health left or like 10 health left or got to a save point with so little health left where you're almost dead. It happened so many times. It was so fun to watch because <laughs> you're, you're kind of reckless. How dare you? <laughs> it was very fun. But also overcautious, like <laughs> yeah. somehow both. <laughs> but yeah, but the experience of that ending for you, I think, was just well, so, so frustrating. Okay, so here's the here's the other thing with the ending. This is stupid, but this is like I, I sincerely feel this way. You, the ending, so I didn't save the animals. I could not in the time figure out where they were. And so eventually, because it had taken me so many tries to just get to my ship before the timer ran out, when I got there, I was like, okay, I just have to, I just have to go. Um, So the last thing you see is Samus's ship zooming away from this planet while this planet explodes. And then the next screen this game gives you is mission completed successfully. (laughs) Like, What's that? <laughs> is this okay? So, in this successful mission, Samus did not collect her bounty, it died, a planet was detonated, 
Actually, two plans were de- detonated because also Ceres, the research station where the Metroid was initially being held, <laughs> also blew up because Samus let Ridley get away in the first place. And it took forever. It took so long. Samus survived, <laughs> but also died a bunch of times. But I don't think her bosses care about that. How is that a successful mission? I just felt it was almost like the game was being sarcastic at me at that point. <laughs> it was like, no, this is a downer ending. This is not like a... Da, 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 da. <laughs> like, that's not the vibe. It was so weird. It was so weird. That was like the moment when I felt the most dissonance between what I was feeling in the mm-hmm. moment and what the game yeah. clearly was like, you did it, buddy. Good job. It was like, I didn't do a good job. Mm-hmm. It was so hard. I limped across the finish line. I didn't save the animals. And none of what I came here to do was accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of an anticlimax for you. Yeah. Uh, that whole last, the whole last sequence, which is too bad. But um, when uh, your one of your favorite directors, Guillermo del Toro, was, <laughs> he's been trying to make games for so long. Mm. And there was a, a chat with him where he's talking about making games. And one of his biggest issues, he said that, right, he's like, when you're doing a movie, you're the director and you can account for everything. But when you're a game, you always have to try to account for what he called the asshole, like the person who will like push against your intent and just poke holes where they're not supposed to. I'm not saying that you were the asshole in this no, situation. No, I was the inept. Like, but, he forgot about the inept. Yeah, but but it's the same kind of principle yeah. that, that happened, right? That the game could not account for all of these variables. Which also, this whole game, the entire, in the core of Super Metroid's DNA, is pushing against every surface looking for secrets. Mm-hmm. Like, why it expects me to suddenly turn that off and just fluidly blast through this this very smooth i guess last sequence i mean i guess there is the big secret which is saving the animals but and so so i will tell you this just for a future reference mm-hmm. the escape is a, a staple of all the metroid games oh okay cool well because you have to do it from series also like yeah from the which, lab is, the, which the is kind of the twist that you're doing at the beginning but okay. the escape at the end i'm pretty sure is in all of them in some form i don't inherently dislike it as mm-hmm. the end of the game like my experience of it didn't really work the way i wanted it to but i'm not a hundred percent sure that it's bad you know what i mean like sometimes it just doesn't work mm-hmm. for in one playthrough um because yeah also the saving the animals thing, when we went and watched it afterwards, because it was like, okay, I have to see where this is. It's it's also kind of not, like it like is a secret in the sense that you have to know which of the many rooms you could detour into it's in. But then it's just like in a room. Like it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not a thing where you have to, mm-hmm. where you like blow up, up a passageway and whatever. It's just like, it's there. You just have to do the detour to get it. Which is, I don't know. It's just like. I, I think. Had you not known that was there, like, I think it was just built up too much for you that you have to save the animals and who knows where they could be. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Because, yeah, I was taking all kinds of weird detours, like checking out corners of spaces that clearly I didn't need to be in. So, yeah, I don't I don't know. I just kind of limped across the end of that game. <laughs> oh, that's that's too bad that that's kind of where your where your playthrough ends. No, where what I really feel is that this game is great. Mm-hmm. I really feel that this is really really special and really impressive and there's so much of this that i will remember and really love i just will also remember that like the ending was weird and when it really ends it gives you um some updates on how you did throughout yeah so now is probably a good time to check in on the predictions you made last time sure to uh see if you predict things correctly or not okay and so the first prediction i asked you was to uh, describe 
I told you there's a, a boss named Fantoon. Mm-hmm. What does he look like? At first, you thought he was going to be a giant fan. I thought he was going to be something oriental. I let you, I let you mulligan on the giant fan idea. Yeah. And then you kind of nailed it. Yeah. I said he was like a kind of ghostly guy who teleported and went like incorporeal and became invincible and then would like re-solidify to take hits. That was all exactly true. Yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, the other thing I asked was what your expectations, what kind of environments you'd encounter. Mixed bag on this one. Mixed bag. Yeah, you said in a base, something underground, metal connected by tunnels, no vegetation. So I said no plants. No plants. I was wrong about that. But you kind of did describe Turian. I, decri- I described Turian and, yeah, in the surface, I would say. That's pretty good. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not complete, but I also did say there would be an ice place. Right. Which I was wrong about. Maybe in the future. <gasps> um, I asked you if you'd find a rival bounty hunter encounter one. I said yes. You said yes. It was a bad question. I'm like, that's such a leading question. Um, it was almost a trick question. Eh, the, the answer I got is it no. Wrong. Um, but so there's no rival bounty hunter. Um, I asked you what your predicted collection rate, your percentage would be. I said 72. You got 77. Pretty close. Yeah, I think you underestimated how much you'd want to go poking at the game. You know what? I also, I'll say when I finished the game and saw that my percentage was Mm. only 77, that seemed low. (laughs) I thought I was going to be like up in the 80s because I ended up getting a lot. Mm -hmm, You did. I had a lot of health, a lot of missiles. It's all those those missiles you (laughs) left behind. I I was like, nah. Asked you how long your playthrough would be. Over 10 hours, I said. That was correct. So Mm -hmm. you got the full body suit ending. Yep. Which is probably for the best. Yep. And then I asked if you're going to save or kill the animals. You did not save the animals. I failed. But you really tried. You I tried, really tried so hard. I died so many times trying. But you, but you didn't. You didn't I do did. it. So that's your time with Super Metroid. I think it's, uh, we've had a lengthy discussion. We should probably wrap up. So do you have any final words? Uh, this game is good. This game is the art is great. The music is great. Uh, the sound design is really good. Lots of scary beeps and boops. Lots of spooky space shit. Uh, play this game. Do you have interest in playing other Metroids? Uh, other games in the yeah, series? I actually, as we were going through, I was like, ooh, if they made a version of this that's kind of like Alien Isolation, like that's 3D and like high production and is like about you being like alone on a space station with like scary stuff moving around, I would definitely play that game. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned that. And you also mentioned they should make, uh, once you got the... Um, the morph ball jump. Yeah. You mentioned that they should make a Metroid pinball game, which also exists. <laughs> and also is basically Yoku's Island Express. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we <laughs> I could... realized one of the few that I have played. <laughs> so yeah, I uh, I predict- predicted some games. <laughs> and so you are interested in maybe pursuing this series in the future. I would check them out. Awesome. There's other highly rated ones. And so now um, to to end, Michelle will give us her, her final score, which is... Uh, scientific process that i don't understand do you want to set this up yeah so at the end of we know people like to see scores of things you want to see it rated so um at the end of every game arc i'm gonna give you guys a a highly objective um score for a game and i'm gonna outline my points allocations uh just to be totally transparent about the validity of of this process uh so here we go so for that weird two seconds of anonymous voiceover in the intro, minus four points. Letting Samus have her own account of her previous adventures, plus nine. For making me watch a bikini shot every time I die, minus ten points. For the Chozo by whom I felt loved and held, plus thirty points. 
for the wrecked ship sequence, plus 15 points. For the pure ecstatic heights of joy of a desperately wanted upgrade, plus 20. For secrets with no thing in them, minus 10. For having no doors on the map, I have to deduct 16 points. For those little grabby things, um, what are they called? Uh, Trapper maws? Trapper maws, you're minus 8 points. (laughs) For having weird biological statues and environmental effects that are only for mood, plus 15 points. For making me use select to rotate through my weapons, minus 10. For putting in the plant zone underground where there's no light, minus 2. For the long, quiet sequences with no baddies, only dread, plus 15. For almost always being able to actually do the thing I imagined doing with the environment, plus 20 points. For not making me do a shitty swimming mechanic in the water levels, plus 5. For two tri-boss fights with multiple strats available, plus 18 points. For a lackluster final boss, I have to deduct five. And for calling a mission where I lost my bounty, blew up a planet, and took forever a success, honestly, plus 10 points. Refreshing. Which gives us a final total of 92. Out of 100? No, just 92. It's not out of anything. (laughs) Okay. It's 92 points. It's good. Okay. And so that brings us to the end of uh, Super Metroid. We can tie a bow on it. It's a 92, apparently. It's a 92. Who's not happy with that? (laughs) It has been settled. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, You can find updates and show notes at neverwasagamer.com. Follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. And you can rate and review us on any podcast platform, including iTunes. If you don't like to do that stuff, and if you enjoyed this episode, you could tell a friend, mention it in a conversation. All those things help us so much, uh, especially we're just getting started and we're just two dum-dums who want to talk about games. So uh, we love your enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time when we discuss another famous cinematic game, this time starring some terrible children, as Michelle continues her quest to become a gamer. (laughs) 